You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, my name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. My name's Claire Perini. And welcome to the Regent Podcast. Uh, today we're talking again with Dr. Ross Hastings, who's a Zimbabwean Scot. He's got two PhDs, one in chemistry uh, and one in theology. And he loves teaching theology here at Regent and um, in particular Trinitarian theology as well as a theology of mission and pastoral theology and ethics. And sort of more recently he's been thinking about this interface between science and theology. Um, he's also been a pastor and he's written um, a number of books, but the ones that we sort of spend time sort of unpacking today is his book, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? A Theology and Psychology of Grief. And so uh, we had a conversation about grief mm-hmm. and loss. Not easy, but Ross Hastings is an open book. And he shared about the loss of his wife and all the impact that had in his life. And it was it was just a, a gift for mm. us. And it's going to be a gift for you and uh, all the conversations around grief and how do, you, how do we understand the Bible. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so Ross has just this beautiful way of weaving together his own experience in a really raw way, as well with his kind of deep theological um, understanding and his deep confidence that he is in Christ in yeah. all of that. And it's, and you, you hear it. So... We hope you hear it, and um, it's an encouragement to you. So enjoy. Ross, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to have you. Um, we're talking about um, a, something big today. We often mm. do, but something big and potentially hard to, to listen to, but hard, but good to talk about, mm. and this kind of big idea of grief and loss. And um, so wondering if you can sort of tell us a little bit about your story with that, and you've written a book about this, and you talk a lot about this. Tell us a little bit about your story that's kind of – Helped you enter into that? Yeah, the book is called uh, Where Do Broken Hearts Go? And uh, it's a story of uh, the loss of my first wife, Sharon, uh, which is just over 10 years ago now. And, uh, you know, in some ways, I, f- I, I sometimes say to people when I'm talking to um, budding pastors or in, in the MDiv program that the qualifications for being a pastor are pain. Mm. Um, and in my life, two things that have marked my life. Um, and which have been redemptive, nevertheless, in some in some mysterious way, have been the experience of depression in my early thirties, which is which is ongoing, and also the loss of, of my of my wife. We were married 27, 27 years. Uh, she died of ovarian cancer uh, from the time of diagnosis until she passed away was twenty one months, mm-hmm. and um, yes, those those are the kinds of things um, that you really never get over. Um, you're never really over them. There, there's always a scab. And um, um, psychologists use the word adaptation rather than resolution. Do you ever resolve your grief? You know, I would argue from a theologian's perspective, you don't really resolve it until the eschaton, until you're with Christ. Um, you do the best you can. You try to be honest with your emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you try to experience your grief and not hide from it and run from it. Um, there's so much mysterious about uh, about about death and loss, um, and yet there are some things that I've clung on to. And mm-hmm. Psalm 16, in particular, has been a huge uh, source of encouragement to me. Um, it begins with uh, the concept that God, the Creator God, is my God, and uh, He's my personal. I'm in personal relationship with Him. And then it talks about the saints who are in the land in whom is all my delight. The, the, so the importance of community going through this loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, my church was uh, 
a- absolutely remarkable in terms of how they cared for Sharon and then for us as a family in so many ways. So, um, yeah, um, God has been faithful, and uh, there has been redemption. And um, I remarried uh, three years after I lost my wife to Tammy. She lost her husband at the same time I lost my wife. It's quite a remarkable story. My wife, Sharon, actually went to the intensive care unit in White Rock. Not the intensive care, the the palliative care unit Mm -hmm. in White Rock to pray with Carlos. He was from Colombia. Uh, a dentist. He was my dentist, and Sharon. Almost every day after her, her nursing, uh, after her day of nursing, would go and uh, and she would pray with Carlos and Tammy. And he died, and she died in the same unit six weeks later. Mm. And Tammy and Sharon were friends. And then uh, three years after that, we we got together and uh, ultimately fell in love, and uh, are grateful for that mm. little sign of God's grace to us. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing is. Um, both of us, um, I suppose, uh, uh, Tammy perhaps uh, on, on more occasions than, than I um, will break down and cry because of things that she's reminded of. And, and I mm-hmm. do the same sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Um, you're never completely over it. And yet we understand one another well and can, um, mm-hmm. can encourage each other in, in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I say this is qualification for being a pastor in the sense that um, I used to, I used to think I think I was a teacher when I, st- I started out in the pastorate mm-hmm. and I love to be six feet above contradiction mm. because you could um, <laughs> you could teach and uh, and I could I could barely actually shake hands with people at the door mm. um, then after a depression and counseling for depression I began to actually be more of a pastor and be able to enter into the pain of other people. Mm. And uh, so that was um, that was important. Um, you know, Second Corinthians is all about Paul's qualification to be a pastor, and it is countercultural for that time and for Corinth. Basically, his qualification for being a pastor is pain, mm-hmm. and he talks yeah. about despairing even of life, um, which seems to me like a confession of depression. Mm. Um, and uh, the care of all the churches, the things that burdened him, um, were really. Uh, the things that qualified him to be a pastor. Uh, the Greek, uh, the Corinthian idea of a leader was of somebody who was perfect mm. and uh, who showed no vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, but I think the very essence of being a pastor is is vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I remember just uh, one story before we move on here, but um, during the midst of the depth of my depression, I was counseled uh, by Dr. Judith McBride, who was a... Um, psychiatrist on the North Shore, very committed Christian, uh, wonderfully insightful. Um, I owe my life to her, really, in many ways. But I was, I was approached by a large church in Calgary at the time to see if I would come and be their pastor. And I was pastoring, already pastoring a church, and I brought the envelope with me into the counseling session. I said, what am I even doing as a pastor? I'm depressed. And she said these words that I've never forgotten. Uh, Ross, your greatest ministry is going to flow out of your greatest brokenness. Mm-hmm. And it's been true. It's 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 been true. Mm. Um, going through a journey of experiencing the loss, experiencing some anger, all of those things that are part of depression, was um, 
in many ways a wonderful preparation for ministering to other people going mm-hmm. through the same thing. So. Yeah, let, let me bounce off of that. You said uh, you said the phrase that your greatest ministry is going to come out, out of your greatest brokenness, right? I think a lot of the church and me in the past have understood that as being out of your resolved brokenness is going to come your, your greatest ministry. Out of the healed or resolved pain, then n- not off of the ongoing pain is going to come. So... So that that is that is I don't I don't even yeah. know if I have a question right there but that that's like mind yeah. changing for me. Well, I mean Paul had a problem that never went away. 2 Corinthians mm-hmm. chapter 12 yeah. in which he pled three times for it to be relieved and it never went away. Yeah. And Jesus and then the Lord spoke to him and said, "My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness." Mm. I think we have this sort of victory motif uh, that I'm not sure is really a New Testament motif. Mm-hmm. Um, it's faithfulness through brokenness. Um, and some of our uh, you know, our greatest trials are those that don't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so after my initial diagnosis of depression, I had an ongoing diagnosis. And I live with that till this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it keeps me dependent. And um, I, there are many days I long that I might be released from this. And I sometimes say to my wife, why can't I get off this medication? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I have a diagnosis of something that requires medication lifelong. Mm-hmm. So um, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. Mm-hmm. And um, I would long to shake off those shackles. Uh, but, you know, you think, of, you think of the Lord Jesus and all that he carried throughout his life. Isaiah 53 said he surely he has borne our griefs and mm-hmm. carried our sorrows um, this is what brings huge comfort mm-hmm. and to the extent that um, I whatever I go through and, and, and life is not all you know it's sad and it's not all um, you know it's not all down mm-hmm. um, yet whatever it is I do go through, uh, by way of suffering, whether it be suffering from the body or suffering through persecution or uh, whatever I go through, um, ultimately, the answer to that for me is a Savior who mm-hmm. ever lives to make intercession for us, who's touched with the feeling of our infirmities, who walks with us, and um, we're caught up into him. And uh, that really is, is, is my only hope, really. When you say we're caught up into him, yeah, because that, that feels like a beautiful, safe Place and yes. that sounds like the place from which you've experienced this right. kind of sufficiency of grace. Yes. What, are, what can you help us unpack that idea? I know it's big and theologically deep. Yes. But give us a sense of what that means. Yeah. So I don't always experience directly in my own soul the comfort of Christ, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in in the now, but not yet. We we don't we don't fully experience those things. We trust. Um, we are faithful in the midst of. Uh, those times when we don't feel much. The dark night of the soul um, is a reality. Um, seasons of discombobulation are, mm. are part of life. Mm. Um, and yet there is this resolute, defiant holding on to Christ that comes by his grace. Mm. And, it, and it, sometimes it's a holding on to the community around you. And it's interesting, during the season of the Puritans, many of the Puritan pastors had tremendous insight into depression, mm. perhaps more so maybe even than modern-day pastors, because mm. there were no psychiatrists and there were no psychologists in the, in the towns. The pastor was it. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things they used to say to people with, with depression is, don't try and read your Bible. 
and don't try to pray. Because in the midst of the deepest of depression, it's it's very hard to pray. It's mm. very hard to concentrate. Mm. And it's very hard to stay, to read, read the Bible. So in those seasons, they invited people around them to pray, pray with them, right. to pray for them, to yeah. intercede for them, to read the Bible for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we're not meant to be, we're not healed in, on our own. We are healed mm-hmm. in community and we're held in community. Yeah, I think that that is very insightful. For, for the question that I have is, uh, there's some, some, some places in the Bible which, you know, they, they foster the, the mourning and the lament and the, mm-hmm. and the you know, the, the, there's time for joy and there's time for grief, there's time for... But then, but then there's some parts in the Bible that, that like uh, Paul would say in Philippians, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Mm-hmm. And again, I say rejoice. And then, and then there's a bunch of, of, of verses like that. And, and for somebody in, in a lot of pain and depression that maybe physically or mentally cannot see themselves rejoicing, they would have to, in a, in a way, kind of avoid those, those passages Mm. Is, is that is that a good approach or no, what do we I don't do think with so. that? I don't think so. I, mean, I think actually the church spends a lot of time avoiding the other one, that is the laments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So forty percent of the psalms are lament. Mm. How? When is the last time you had a service of lament in your church? Mm-hmm. It's sort of a given that we should go to church and feel happy, clappy, and leave with a fake smile on our face. Sorry to be so cynical. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, and yet, so it would be nice if forty percent of the time we actually got to lament. Mm. Um, experience our grief, experience our loss, uh, in solidarity with the world, with, with so much suffering, for mm-hmm. example, um, as well as in, in uh, solidarity with the people of God around us who are going through such difficulty. Um, I think it's a bit of a misconception, too, around depression and joy. Mm-hmm. Depression doesn't necessarily mean sadness. Mm-hmm. Depression actually means that all of your emotions are frozen. It's very difficult to feel anything, either sad or rejoicing. Mm-hmm. When you read a text like that, um, I think two things I'd say about it. Paul's speaking to the norm, the normal Christian. Mm-hmm. He's speaking to them in difficult circumstances, and he himself's in difficult circumstances, and he's saying there is, we have a capacity in light of who God is to rise above these circumstances, mm-hmm. uh, rejoice in the Lord. Um, that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, um, it can be taken two ways. It's an objective that could be an objective genitive or a subjective genitive, right? It's the okay. idea of do I rejoice by being in the Lord and, and his strength, or do I rejoice by focusing on the Lord? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that even people who are depressed um, can, as a result of the community around them and in seasons as they go through depression, experience that mm-hmm. and determine to move in that direction to focus mm-hmm. on the Lord. Um, of course, of course, there are times when you're so desperately depressed and so ill that no mm-hmm. feeling is possible. Mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges of a Christi- Christian way of seeing depression is we somehow, we're very sympathetic. If somebody has, uh, shall we say, um, diabetes, we have no problem saying they need some insulin and being sympathetic with how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. But if somebody has depression, which is a mental illness, we struggle. We, we spiritualize it. Mm-hmm. We we do all kinds of things with it rather than recognize it too is an illness. It too is the result of a chemical imbalance. Antidepressants, when they're needed, and I think they are over-prescribed in our day, but when they're needed for people who are truly depressed, they're a gift from God. They're a gift of God's grace, mm-hmm. and they should be taken. Um, 
and always when I would pray for somebody as a pastor who's struggling with depression um, and who's on medication and they wanted prayer for healing, I would say, I'm going to pray for your healing, but you're not coming off that medication unless you talk to your doctor and you titrate, you come off that medication slowly. Mm. Um, so one needs a realism about this. Mm. And so I want to say that uh, rejoice in the Lord. Um, it is it's a, it's a leaning into the Lord, even in the midst of your desperate feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it's leaning into a hope that we have in Christ uh, for the present and indeed for, for the eschaton. And um, it's, it's also perhaps a rejoicing simply in the fact that we know he's there, and uh, even when we don't feel him mm-hmm. and are, are carried forward. And, and so in, in that you can rejoice. I do want to say something important, I think, around that mm-hmm. issue, and that is uh, the writer to the Hebrews, he, Hebrews is full of um, suffering and the suffering of Christ with us and yeah. for us and how through prayer we can be caught up into his life. Um, And and it's very wonderful. But this might sound a little harsh, but the writer of the Hebrews said, no trial for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. But afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Mm. So it is productive ultimately, but Mm. then there's a condition. It says, to those who are trained by it. The old King James Version said, to those who are exercised by it. Mm. In other words... The productiveness of suffering in us is not unconditional. It is required of us, again, by grace, to to ask the question, Lord, what are you teaching me in the midst of this? Lord, um, my heart is open to you, even though I don't understand what's going on. In the midst of this great loss or in the midst of this great depression, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm still open to you, mm-hmm. and and I'm still wrestling with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love the picture of Jacob wrestling at Jabbok. Yeah, um, and he is he is honored for wrestling yeah. all through the night yeah. until the break of day. And I think of us um, when you go through loss, when you go through grief, and you don't understand uh, the fact that you are in the wrestling, that you are in prayer, uh, even the kind of prayer that says, "Lord, why." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lord, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, just the fact that you're still wrestling means you still believe, you're still with him, and um, you're inviting his, his work, his touch in your life. Um, and interesting for Jacob, it was a touch on the thigh, and he limped for the rest of his life. And mm-hmm. Hebrews yeah. chapter 11 puts it beautifully that he rested um, on his staff. He learnt the rocky road from drivenness to dependence mm-hmm. throughout his life, yeah. largely through pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the Puritans and the way they, they would like tell him not to read the Bible. Because uh, like, I know a lot of people use the Bible in a, not in the best way, but their heart is to help you, right? And they, they think they should cite as many verses as they can to lift up your spirit. Because mm-hmm. you know there's the idea of, of the Word of God never coming no, vo- void, void yes, right? Yes. It doesn't return to you void, yeah. Ex- exactly. So like, is that the best way of using the Bible? How should yeah. we use the Bible in, in order to help people? We must never forget that we have the Bible, which is the product of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we also have the Holy Spirit who works directly with us, and Word and Spirit go together. Mm -hmm. Um, And you will 
I believe, minister most effectively to people if you're led by the Spirit in the way you use the Bible and in the way in which you interpret it. I can just tell you that um, when Sharon died, or in the process in, in which she was dying, I must have received hundreds of emails mm-hmm. with hundreds of scriptures. Mm-hmm. And yet, there were a few, maybe more than a few, that when you read it, it went to the core of your heart and you sensed comfort, something settled within mm-hmm. your spirit. And I suggest that probably those verses were, or those texts, passages, were ones which had been prayed over. Mm. And the work of the Holy Spirit was evident in a timely word, um, a word that was uh, just right, a word in season, like mm. Jesus said, or, or Isaiah says, and uh, I believe that um, this is a messianic word referring to the Messiah to come. Um, he prayed every morning that he might have a word in season mm. for those who were weary. Mm. Pastoral ministry is about a word in season. Mm, mm. Not just a word, a word in season. Yeah. yeah. And I think, because I think that is the the thing I've heard in terms of helping and using the scriptures in times of pain and grief. Is, yeah, it's not this, don't worry, God's going to teach you something through mm. it. Like that just yeah, feels yeah, like crass, the yeah. worst. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yet we do, there is this sense, you know, there's the kind of bumper sticker that says pain is your best teacher or mm, whatever. Mm. And there's an element to which that's true. Um I think it's probably less helpful saying it in a time. Don't don't worry. The pain you're going through, it's gonna, it's going to cause fruit. It's going to, or is that helpful? I don't, I don't know. Or, or yeah, it, timing is everything. Yeah, or totally. even in the sense that that the God's treating your heart right now, meaning that God sent that, God designed yeah. that, or, disease or even, or, or even He's trusted you with this really great trial. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've yeah. heard that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Timing is everything. There may be a time when some of these things might be said. Some of them should never be said. Um, but I, I think, I think there's a lesson to be learnt. Uh, if I've learned a lesson um, going through what I've gone through, and, and I realise many people have gone through much worse things than I have, the most important thing in pastoral care is presence. And then, of course, as the Spirit leads you, you may share a word, but it's your presence. If I think of the the advocacy ministry of Jesus. We have an advocate with the Father. That word, I believe, has the connotation of coming alongside to help. Mm. And it's used also the Holy Spirit, coming alongside to help. When you are in Christ and you're in union with Christ and participation with Christ, when you come alongside somebody, your prayer is that Christ is coming alongside them and that you are a means Mm. of communicating the presence of Christ to them. Uh, as well as the word of Christ when he gives you the appropriate word to say. Most people, when they go to be with people in tragedy, are thinking about what they're going to say. What am I going to say? And I understand that. I know the anxiety of that. Um, I'll never forget to my dying day going to visit a single mother who just lost her her only son, seven years of age. He he died in a playing floor hockey in a church. What? He had a congenital heart disease, and they didn't know it. What do you say to a single mother who's lost everything? Mm. Um, to be honest, I don't remember anything I said when I walked in that mm. door. I just remember hugging her. I just remember you know, trying to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so having, 
having smart words is not there are there's a word in season for sure that God gives you, but trying to think of um, smart aleck things to say is just not not appropriate. It's just to be with, and um, I mean taking that funeral is, has to be the, the mo- one of the most challenging funerals I've ever taken. Mm-hmm. I also took a funeral for a three year old who uh, struggled with leukemia, mm-hmm. who died of leukemia. You know what I want to say is the grace of God that was manifest in these people, that single mother and this couple. That's what I most marvel at. Mm. I marvel at how uh, how God uh, enabled them in ways they could never imagine have been, having been mm. enabled. God doesn't give us grace until we need it. I also think about my wife, you know, because I prayed with lots of people for healing as a pastor. Some were healed. And my wife gets ovarian cancer. Many people prayed for her healing. The elders prayed over her for healing, anointed her with oil. Mm. But she wasn't healed. But I have to say this. Um, the way in which, the manner in which my wife suffered, the manner in which she cared for others as she was dying, you know, what's a greater miracle? The miracle of healing or the miracle of a person, a spirit, who is so, so ensconced in Christ that their very disposition reveals the glory of God. Mm. Um, in other words, to die well is as much to show grace. There's as much grace in dying well mm-hmm. as there is the grace of healing. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think I, I've struggled with with that. You mentioned when Paul asked God to take the thorn out of his flesh, and God uh, said to him, "My grace is sufficient," which kind of meant uh, you're gonna you're gonna live with it maybe throughout your whole life, right? So, my grace is gonna be sufficient. And sometimes I know people have felt, people listening, and me as well, felt that okay, your grace is sufficient, but where is it? I need your grace like right now, and I want to access it, but I can't. Like, where do I go? Uh, How do I access the grace I really, really, really need right now? Mm -hmm. So, what 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 would you say to people? How do you how do you do that, or how does it work, or where do I go exactly, or what are the practices I should follow? Or great, yeah, I think that's both a personal. There's both a personal answer and a communal answer to that, or an ecclesial answer to that. The personal answer is constantly to look to God in prayer in, and ask and invite his grace uh, to us uh, by the Holy Spirit to pray for the fullness and fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives um, constantly and always to have this um, affect and openness to God um, that is receptive to what he wants to do in our lives. And, and if we can say this negatively, not to run to the broken cisterns. By that, okay. uh, not to run to those things that we, that Jeremiah calls broken cisterns that mm. can't bring water, that don't bring water. In other words, in the midst of pain and suffering, it's very easy to be tempted to satisfy our hungry and broken souls um, with things that are inappropriate, inappropriate mm. sexuality, inappropriate food, inappropriate uh, mm. shopping, I don't know, whatever it is. That um, not, not that any of those things are in their right place wrong, it's just that they easily become idols. We try to fill our souls with those things. So I think that's, that's one thing Paul, Paul would have known. Mm. I mean, he does talk about beating his body and bringing it into subjection. Wow, mm. that's 
that's hard stuff. Mm. Uh, I think he's just simply saying, my body has a, temp- has a tendency as a result of the fall um, to pursue things which are not helpful. Mm. But then there's, so, so grace is received personally through prayer, through personal community with brothers and sisters. Interesting, Paul never, it seems that Paul never, tra- uh, very rarely traveled on his own in his missionary, missionary mm-hmm. journeys. Yeah. He travels with Barnabas, he travels with, with Silas, he travels with others, and he needs community and he knows he needs that. But then there's the whole corporate thing, and I think that probably should be the first answer. Where do we receive grace? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, we receive grace through the word preached uh, in the church, and we receive grace through the Eucharist or the communion, the Lord's mm-hmm. Supper. We receive grace through uh, the community uh, of the saints. Um, and so those, those are the, the ways in which we are, we are deeply ministered to. And for me, I, w- I would say um, I, I heard some sermons in the midst of my loss that were deeply comforting. Mm. Um, coming to the Lord's table is, is huge. You know, I like to say, say that the word preached is the Protestant sacrament, as Bart would call it. And uh, the Lord's Supper is the, is the sacrament um, the Eucharist is, we, we feed on Christ in whatever way you may want to understand that um, through his spiritual presence is mm-hmm. the way I understand it in, in the sense of John Calvin. But the point is, you know, I feed on Christ. I, I, I put a little, little word in here for communion. I really feel communion is not an optional extra for the church. It mm-hmm. defines the church. Mm-hmm. It ought to be every Sunday, not once a month as a tack on to the end of a service. It really defines the church. And it's a means of grace. Mm-hmm. And if we wonder why we don't experience too much grace, that's because we don't put, make that more central, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway, I don't want to be on a hobby horse here or anything, but no. uh, that's, that's, that's important. The, the, the grace, the practices of being with the people of God yeah. are crucial. Mm. Mm-hmm. And Ross, you said earlier that, that you never sort of get over grief, that mm. it's, sort of, it's, it's unresolved in many ways. Um, and this is something I've heard you talk about before as well. What about... Um, uh, grief for what could be mm-hmm. but isn't. So I'm thinking, say, of uh, the pra- the, someone who might long to be married right. and isn't oh, or yeah, thinking about someone who longs to have children yes. um, and can't for whatever yes, reason yeah. um, or, or any number of things. So at what point do you sort of grieve it and how do you hold on to hope? Yeah. Like I hope that this will happen and yet I need to be understand reality that this may not happen. So that... Yeah, that grief that is sort of of what would be or yes. what could be or what I hoped would be. Yes, absolutely. What, do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, those two situations that you mentioned are acute and yeah. they don't get the attention. I mean, I remember Rod and Bev Wilson, or Rod in particular, sharing in Soul of Ministry how that's it's a silent suffering. Mm. And it's particularly acute on days like Mother's Day and Father's Day. Mm. But it's, um, it's a deep pain and also the, the pain of... Singleness that's not desired. Mm. Um, mm. Those those are those are acute pains, and they bring into focus what we've been saying um, regarding Paul's experience of ongoing, the ongoing nature of whatever was his particular. It's, it's, it's often been commented that Paul doesn't say what that thorn in the flesh is, yeah. and I think there's great wisdom in that because it doesn't matter what your particular issue is, mm-hmm. you can relate um, to this thorn in the flesh. Um, because because he doesn't define it, um, and so yes, those are uh, you know everyone suffers, and I want to say this that it, there there is some sense in which every single person in life experiences the tragic, mm. the what might have been, 
Right. Mm. Um, or to use the words of um, Cornelius Plantinga, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, that's a great little book, by the way, on suffering and pain. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, indicating that we can't hold God responsible. God is not the direct origin of evil or suffering. Um, he permits it and he redeems it. Um, and somehow in this uh, universe, in this cosmos, uh, it seems to me that God decided that the permission of evil and his redemption of it would result in greater glory and greater revelation of grace from him. Um, that's not to say that's a cut-and-dried theodicy. Mm-hmm. It's not. For me, the ultimate theodicy is the fact that uh, God has in Christ suffered with us mm. and does suffer with us. Um, he is the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And and so, um, yes, indeed, these are, these are, these are deep challenges. Mm. And, um, and singleness in particular, you know, with it goes... Um, sometimes a sense of rejection, a sense mm-hmm. of I'm not, I'm not enough, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say in Soul of Ministry on this particular topic is, you know, whether you're single or married, God's call to us is to cultivate our sense of personhood in relation. Yeah. Um, I know many people are married who's, who are not very, I don't know, got a long way to go mm-hmm. with their personhood. Um, and and somehow, and even with regard to sexuality, for example, mm. you might think, okay, I'm, all my sexual problems will, will be resolved because now I'm married. I don't think so. Um, if you're not sexually healthy when you're single, you're not sexually healthy when you're married, mm. and you may need some help uh, irrespective. Uh, but beyond that particular issue, just to say that, um, you know, you can't ever say to a single person, okay, there's someone around the corner. Don't don't worry. Mm. You know, it's mm. it's just wrong to say that because you don't know. Mm. Um, you may think to yourself, "How can that person not be married? They're so beautiful, or so you mm. know, so wonderful." And yet, the right person hasn't come, or whatever. But you keep those thoughts to yourself. You can't give false hope. At the same time, um, I think what one do- seeks to do is to affirm the person mm. um, and to to trust that um, in in God's uh, sovereign way, he he will work that which is best for us, mm. um, and uh, and give grace for whatever he calls upon us to do. Mm. And I think that you're just that whole idea that everyone has an experience of the tragic helps with that feeling in any of those situations. Yes. Of the, I'm the only one who feels like this. Yes. I'm the only one who feels alone, or I'm the only one who yes. feels this depth of pain because yes. of what I've experienced, right. either that longing or whatever. Yes. Um, there's something about that kind of. Um, that universality of yeah, it that right. is that is helpful, I think, as well in, yes. in any kind of situation. Right. Um, and yet there is the particularity of someone's own experience. And yes, so that's for sure. how do we th- – that's one other thing. You even said this earlier. There might have been other people who have experienced something much worse than I have. Yes. And we, we do sometimes tend to do that with grief and loss. It's yes. like, well, you've, you've experienced that, but I've experienced that. And how do we, how do we understand yeah. the universality oh, and the particularity of that? Yes, when I said that, I was trying to, I was trying on the one hand, being sensitive to the mm. fact that there are people who are going through you know, very dire things, much more so than I have. I was not in any way trying to minimize what I went through. No, yeah. Uh, because I have sometimes heard people saying, yeah, I'm just going to suck it up. People, are, people have gone it's through a lot worse yeah. than me. Yeah. And what they do is they, f- 
they fail to be real and honest with how they are feeling yeah. mm. and rob themselves of an opportunity to experience the comfort of Christ and and the ministry of the community to them and so on. So, um, yes, one of the things I've written in my book is, is pastorally, it's, it's probably very important for us never to say to somebody else, I know exactly what you're going through. Yeah. Because you don't. Mm-hmm. Because no two stories are the same. No two persons are alike. I think actually it's one of the miracles of the universe is that God created persons that reflect his own personhood and relation, three mm-hmm. persons. Um, personhood is remarkable. There are no two persons alike mm-hmm. in the world. Um, even if as twins they have remarkably close DNA, they're still not the same. They don't have exactly the same history of mm. relationship, yeah. soul history. So this is a remarkable thing. And um, and by the way, I believe that one of the reasons uh, that, that grief is such a shock or loss is such a shock. When Sharon was about to die, somebody said to me, you know, she, you know what, you're going to be shocked. And I said, really? I, she's been 21 months in treatment and 21 days now in palliative care, I'm going to get a shock when she died. Dies, I was shocked. I was shocked. I've, I write in my book that shock is probably the the main way in which I um, describe grief. Mm. Grief is the unthawing of shock. You know, if I if I may, I might just mm. just read this little piece that was written um, by um, the person who wrote the biography for um, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. He says it is. One of the mysteries of our nature that a man, all unprepared, can receive a thunderstroke like that and live. There is but one reasonable explanation of it. The intellect is stunned by the shock and by groping gathers the meaning of the words. The power to realize their full import is mercifully wanting. The mind has a dumb sense of vast loss. That is all. It will take mind and memory months and possibly years to gather the details and thus learn and know the whole extent of the loss. Mm. Mm. That's been so true. Even now, 10 years later, I sometimes will be staring into space and will say to myself, is Sharon really gone? Mm. And God, why did you take her? And why is it that you took her when now my daughter is about to have a baby and I need you here? Mm. Of course, Tammy's wonderful. She's really stepped in and she'll be there for, for Heather in a wonderful way. But my my initial instinct is is to say, where are you? Mm. When they were when they graduated, when they got married, I, you know, screaming with me, Sharon, where are you? It's not even rational. Mm. You know, I know that she's gone, but it's the shock slowly wearing off. Thorn, yeah. And you say, why do we get shocked? And this relates to your person question. Mm. Um, and, and it's this reason that when two persons are married. They're deeply intertwined and interpenetrated in every way. Um, and so when they're ripped apart, um, I've often heard people say, I, I've lost a piece of me. I've lost a piece of myself. And you have because you are a relational self. Mm. Um, even even friends um, or people who are not even friends. I'm, I'm, this may sound funny to you, but when Robin Williams passed away, mm. mm-hmm. I felt that very deeply. Mm. Mm. Not only because he's a wonderful comedian, but somehow through all of, of what he endured with his mental illness and so on, I, I, there, there was just a piece of me gone, just a small piece, mm. admittedly. Mm. But when, the closer you are to someone, and, and with two unique persons in a mm. friendship or in a marriage, when it's taken away in death, 
It is shock. That's why we have shock. Um, and and that's why we can never say, I know exactly what you're going through. Mm. You may say, I know something of what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lost my wife um, 10 years ago to cancer. Uh, and there is a community of cancer, by the way. When, people, when you mm. bump into people who are going through cancer, it's a, there's an immediate sense of community when you say that your wife uh, died of cancer. There's just a, a community, mm. a community of loss. Mm. But yeah, just to say, I think that it's important to exercise as much empathy as we can, mm, mm. but not to overdo it and mm. say, I know exactly what you're yeah. going through because they're saying, no, you don't. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask you this one last question. I, I know a lot of people going through pain and, you know, s- loss of a child. And a lot of them have ministries or, or have have jobs. And, and sometimes you feel that, is it too soon for me to get back on that horse? Mm. And and I, I know that this is a case-by-case thing. And but a lot of them, uh, they, they kind of need like signs that would point them to, yeah, I think you're somehow ready to get back on a horse, or, or or like to say, to re-engage yeah, yeah, do way. not, do yeah. not do that. Just mm. yet, yeah, you're not at that point. It's going to be very harmful for you. So, what are the signs you would? If I may answer that question in a twofold way, I'd like to address, address jobs, and then okay. I'd like to address new relationships as well. Oh, great, it's quite yeah. important. Jobs wise. It really depends. Some people cope well by getting back into their jobs quickly, particularly if they're routine um, and they like the routine of what they're doing. They like the people connection. Um, other people are not ready. It really, it really depends. Mm-hmm. I mean, Regent was very gracious to me. I was, I was given a term off because Sharon actually died within three weeks, I think, of the term starting mm-hmm. in the fall. And... I had already missed three weeks, so the, the um, regent was very gracious to me, and I valued that time to be sure. Although I have to say, I mean, I I think I did a lot of soul work, but I also did some writing um, because I was alone and I and I could do that. Mm. Um, and so it really does depend. The counselor who commented on this uh, piece on Mark Twain says shock is actually God's anesthesia. It's God's gift to us. Mm-hmm. Because if you really can't take in no. all that's happening to mm-hmm. you, and so you take it in slowly, shock th- slowly wears off, and you're able to take it in. That is true. And so in, in that sense, you start off with denial is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. The, the gift of shock, if you could call that denial, it's a good thing. But after a while, you have to learn to face it. Mm-hmm. And the failure to face our grief can lead to complicated grief, can lead to depression. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really important to try to have people with you or who are discerning with you, whether you're ready or not. Mm-hmm. That would be a good thing to do. Um, then the question of when are you ready for a new relationship? Because I've watched this happen, I, I kind of give a warning. And maybe this is especially true for men more so than women because... Mm. Let's face it, men are kind of helpless uh, and useless. Um, you know, when they've lost their wife, they're just, they're at sea. And and so they're looking for somebody quite quickly. Uh-huh. And and also, they're very emotionally vulnerable. They're especially emotionally vulnerable to somebody who may look like their wife or have the same kind of emotional makeup as their wife. I, I, that, that for, for me, was a revelation how vulnerable I was. The rule of thumb is don't go into a new relationship for at least a year. Mm-hmm. And if you have children, make it two years. Mm. Because 
I mean, I was just talking to a friend the other day whose who's father remarried within three months somebody younger than any of the children and was wondering why they had a problem with it. Because all they're thinking, oh, so I have someone to comfort me now. And yeah. mm. it's very wonderful. The, the, yeah. the, the children were up in arms yeah. quite naturally yeah. because they felt the, uh, the memory of their mother was not honored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I would just caution people, when you've lost somebody, take at least a year. And if you have children, take more than a year. Yeah. Um, anyway, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be in a relationship um, for a while before you remarry. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, get premarital counseling. As a pastor, I would never marry anyone without doing premarital counseling with them or having it done with, by somebody else. And if it's a second marriage... Doubly so. You need oh, doubly so. Yeah, doubly so. Second marriages break down more frequently than first marriages. It's quite... Oh. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and there are all kinds of reasons for that that have to do with blended families and, mm-hmm. and all kinds mm-hmm. of uh, challenged loyalties and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say I've been very blessed uh, to have a blended family. Most of them have grown up and are out of the home but they get on well, and it's been a, a grace to me. And um, my wife is a mother. My wife Tammy is a mother to, to all of them, mm. and um, and I try to be a father to all of them as well. And mm. re- yet, with the recognition, both of us have the recognition that you have to be very sensitive yeah. about that. Mm. It's not like I want to be your dad now uh, when it's when it's not really appropriate yet. Yeah. But you are there, and uh, over the course of time, perhaps become a source of stability for them. Yeah. 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 So, Ross, as we come to the end here, you talked earlier about adaptation uh, rather than resolution when it comes to grief. Um, does it always stay unresolved? I'm so grateful to have the hope, the eschaton. We live in the now, but not yet. There is a not yet. Um, the not yet is the great reality that God will bring resolution to our pain. Mm-hmm. And Revelation 21 reflects that. It says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death and no more pain and no more uh, tears. Um, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. I like that. It says that he will wipe away every tear Mm -hmm. from our eyes. So no matter what your source of suffering, he will wipe it away. He will bring resolution to all the questions that we have, I'm sure, in that coming day. Um, There are many mysteries about that day. I mean, I've often wondered, how will I introduce my second wife to my first wife <laughs> except they already know each other yeah. but will there be a weirdness about that Jesus says there's neither marrying nor giving in marriage which actually tells us that even our marriage relationships um, we mustn't be too possessive about them and that we must we must build into and be built up by our spouses with a recognition that that eternal relationality um, and the eternal likeness to Christ is what is what's so important mm-hmm. um, in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, when Sharon died, um, and I it was a few months later, and I was actually it was a, maybe a year later, and I was beginning to think about should I be thinking about marriage. And Ricky Watts came to see me, and um, gave me an encouraging word. And then I said, "But how will I introduce my first wife to my second wife in heaven?" And he said. Mate, you're way too possessive. (laughs) (laughs) And I asked the same question to Hans Borsma, and he said, Ross, those things are transcendent, and this this is only a sacrament. 
And uh, so it was interesting. They answered quite differently, mm -hmm. yeah. but they both gave me encouragement. So, yeah. yeah, we have a great hope. Things will make sense. And ultimately, that's when we will have the full answer to the whole theodicy question. Is mm -hmm. Why did God permit evil in the first mm -hmm. place? Um, and I believe the answer will be in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ and a, a redeemed community and the resolution of issues that um, we do not understand down here and all injustices will then be put right. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord <laughs> Jesus. Amen. Ross, thanks so much for your time and for your You're honesty. Welcome. Yeah, thank, we really yeah thank you so much. We, we appreciate and respect your vulnerability. Oh, we really you. do. Thank you so much. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net. <laughs>